Hey guys, you're listening to Web of Wicked. We're a mother-daughter duo that bond over true crime. I'm Erin. I'm the mom. And I'm Kayla. I'm the daughter. On this podcast, we cover some sensitive topics, so listener discretion is advised. Welcome to the very first episode of Web of Wicked. The plan is for my mom and I to take turns with the telling of cases and also have some back and forth discussion, giving reactions and personal opinions. We were discussing how there's so many different aspects to true crime, and it reminds us of a web with all its strands weaving the complete case. That's why we picked Web of Wicked for our name. When you follow one strand, it leads you to another and another. It can get confusing very quickly. What we hope to do is break things down and tell stories in a way that's easy to follow while still giving a well-researched and detailed account. As we get started, we'll see what works and what doesn't and change things up as needed. We're both really excited to get started, so without further ado, here's my mom. Hey everyone. So the case I'm going to tell you about today, it's a lesser known case, especially outside of Puerto Rico where it happened. It's the case of Andrea Ruiz Costas. I ran into two challenges with this case. Number one, there was very little coverage in English, so I had to translate articles and court documents with my extremely basic Spanish skills. So shout out to my husband, Jose, who really helped me out. Number two, there was a lot of conflicting information in articles and news reports, even on basic stuff like dates and names. So I found myself double and triple checking things because I definitely didn't want to get details wrong. So with that out of the way, let's get started. This is a story of one woman. Her name was Andrea Cristina Ruiz Costas. Unfortunately, because of the circumstances surrounding her death, she became a member of a group no one wants to be a part of. She became a victim of domestic violence. And although it's a problem in all countries, today I want to talk about the particular problem of domestic violence in Puerto Rico because there really is a crisis situation on the island right now. And I know some people might say, what does some white lady know about issues in Puerto Rico? But through my husband, I've been a part of a Puerto Rican family for 18 years, and I've lived on the island for the past seven. My husband lost a very dear cousin to domestic violence, and also I volunteer at a homeless shelter here and see a lot of it. So it really is something that's close to my heart. This type of violence, it's not anything new. It didn't just pop up and increase out of nowhere. Historically, there's been a culture of what Latinos call machismo, where boys are raised to have to be tough. They're encouraged not to show emotion and quote-unquote be a man, and also due to generational domestic violence, where kids see the women in their family being victimized, so it becomes almost normal. These things were more accepted in the past and swept under the rug. I think now, due to a shift in societal norms with social media, strong Latinx activists, and people being brave and speaking up, a little more light is being shed on the problem. Sadly, Puerto Rico seems to be way behind when it comes to issues like this. There's a real disconnect between admitting the problem and taking action that actually translates into real change. It's unfortunate that women have to live in fear or even lose their lives for anything to change. This story is one that too many women can relate to, and they all deserve their story to be told. But today, it's Andrea's day. This takes place in 2021, so very recent. Andrea was 35 years old and lived in Caguas, Puerto Rico, 
which is about 25 minutes south of San Juan. She was a manager at a clothing store and very responsible and hardworking. Her sister Alexandria describes her as bohemian, a nature lover, hardworking, and affectionate. Her dream for the future was simple, to have a small house in the country with flowers and room to enjoy nature. When you see her picture, and we'll post some on our social media, the first thing you notice is her smile. She really looks like someone you would want to call your best friend. She had no children and was single when she met Miguel Ocasio Santiago. He was the head of security at a shopping center that her store was located in. They didn't date long, only about eight months. He had gotten progressively controlling, jealous, and frankly, he was scaring her. So she decided to end things. He did not take the breakup well. He refused to accept it and started a pattern of stalking, intimidating behavior. He called her incessantly. He was leaving threatening voice messages and texts. He would follow her to friends and family's homes, and then he would stalk those people. He constantly watched her while she was at work, and because he worked in the same shopping complex, there was no escape. He had a copy of her car keys and refused to give them back. At one point, he even stole private, intimate pictures and videos from her phone, and he threatened to share them if she didn't take him back. Wow. Yeah, this is more common than a lot of people think. I mean, how many of you know a person who's going through a breakup like this or even experienced it yourselves? Yeah, unfortunately, I think there's a lot of cases of women going through stuff like this. They do see the red flags, but they try to minimize it and make excuses about how bad it really is. Like thinking, eh, he's just upset about the breakup. So they hesitate to go for help when they should, I think. Well, yeah. So obviously she was feeling increasingly unsafe. So she did what is recommended for women to do in this situation. She asked for help. On March 25th, 2021, she went to court to request a protection order. Sounds reasonable, right? She saw Judge Sonia Nieves Cordero. Andrea gave her account of all the things she was going through. She had evidence on her cell phone, texts, voicemails, and just a little note, the evidence needed to issue a temporary order of protection is minimal. But this judge decided that instead of leaving her, she wanted to summon Miguel to court on March 31st, a week from then, so she could hear from both of them before making a decision whether to grant the order. So Andrea leaves, hurt and discouraged, with no protection order. And now Miguel is contacted and made aware that she went to the court. I haven't been able to find any specific details of an incident that happened that night, but I imagine that she was even more terrified knowing that he knows that she reported him. Yeah, well, he was probably enraged. Yeah, that had to be so scary for her. And even though it probably pissed him off, it probably also gave him satisfaction knowing that they didn't give it to her. So the very next day, March 26th, she now went to the police with all of her evidence. They found cause under Puerto Rico's Law 54, the gender violence statute, to bring her case to the attention of a prosecutor. A prosecutor looked over everything and signed off on it so it could be put in front of the judge the same day as a criminal case. A little side note, in Puerto Rico, cases of domestic violence fall under a broader term of gender violence which includes sexual harassment, sexual assault, domestic violence, and any other serious crime committed against a person because of their gender. So I just wanted to explain that because in Puerto Rico, you hear and see the term gender violence more, but in the U.S., we tend to say domestic violence for a case like this, and they just really don't use that term. 
So things are looking a little more promising today. The police seem to take her seriously. Andrea thinks even though this is hard, maybe things are looking up. She had gotten there at 3 p.m., but she'd been shuttled back and forth, telling her story over and over to many, many people. Police, prosecutors, judges. And now she was also dealing with the fact that they had called and brought in Miguel, who showed up with his lawyer, and everyone was going to appear in front of the judge. Finally, at almost 8 p.m. that night, she gets in front of Judge Ingrid Alvarado Rodriguez. They did it virtually by video call. But the prosecutor doesn't show up. Andrea doesn't have her own attorney, so she's left completely alone with Miguel, his lawyer, and the judge. In the end, the judge finds no causa, which means no cause for arrest. Andrea is once again left alone, frustrated and confused that the people and system whose job it is to support and protect victims had not believed her. So now we come to March 31st. Back to the courtroom of Judge Sonia Nieves. I don't know if it was pure frustration with the system or ongoing intimidation or just the fact of having to face Miguel while telling her story in front of the judge, but she decided that day to withdraw her petition for the order of protection. That's a lot. Like, I can understand how frustrating it would be to leave time and time again with no resolution. Yeah, that had to be hell. And think about this. Here she is, a clean-cut, well-spoken, responsible woman, has a job, her own place, and she can't get anywhere in court. Imagine women who don't come off as well. Maybe they're struggling in life. These women would have absolutely no chance. I think that's why a lot of women don't even ask for the help. Yeah, they're intimidated by the whole system, and really, who can blame them? So later on, one of her friends released voice messages that Andrea had left between March 26th and 29th. They're in Spanish, so here's a rough translation of the words straight from Andrea. All right, I'm going to read them. So no, I'm super pissed. Because of the photos, they found no cause yesterday. And you'll see that they won't give me the protection order on Wednesday either. Honestly, I'm very disappointed. Yeah, here she mentions the photos, and I think she really feels like because she told the judge about the intimate photos that he was threatening her with, she felt like the judge looked down on her so didn't give her the order. All right, here's another one. Hopefully knowing that they are the ones who have experience in these cases and the things that happen, well, the other judge, the one who was my judge at night, she was mad about how late it was when we started filing the case. I don't know, whatever. And people had to tell her, listen, she got here at 3 o'clock. It took a while to go to the prosecutor's office. Between here and there, waiting for and interviewing Miguel, and then to get to you. And I truly believe she gave no cause because she was fed up. She had a face. She was fighting with us over the video call. So yeah, nothing. Well, let this be whatever God wants. May this serve as a lesson to me. Yeah, this was referring to Judge Alvarado, who, by the way, she's the sister-in-law of a Puerto Rico senator. And you'll find in Puerto Rico, there tends to be a lot of connections between people with power. There's a lot of political favors, putting family into high-paying positions, but that's a whole other story. Anyway, audio from this hearing was leaked to Noticel. That's a news agency here. And this judge was really horrible. The mic picked her up complaining about how late it was. She sounded completely annoyed, didn't ask to see any evidence, and it was obvious she just wanted to go home. All right, here's another voice message. 
Well, look, I called legal services. They transferred me to the lawyer they assigned to my case. The secretary doesn't answer the phone at the office. So I'm just going to Cagua's because I can't keep missing days of work. And here's another one. I know it's messed up that I haven't told you, but it's very delicate. I've already spoken so many times about it. I've told so many people, so many cops, all the same shit. To so many prosecutors, so many judges, that I'm sick of it. And here's the last message. I feel right now that I have no control of my life because no matter what I do, everything depends on him, on how he's watching over me, on how he's stalking me, that I can't receive any visits at my house, that if I'm going to someone's house, I have to make sure he isn't following me so he won't know where they live. It's messed up, really, that he has my keys, the keys to my car, that at any moment, I mean, he could be getting into my car when I'm sleeping at night and snooping through it or who knows what. You can just hear the frustration in her voice. It's so, so sad. You can tell she just sounds so defeated here. 32 days after the first time she went to court in March, on April 27, 2021, Andrea went missing. Her family and friends raised the alarm. It would come out later that on the 28th, text messages from Andrea's phone were sent to her friend Gabriella, claiming that she was in Calle visiting a friend to get away for a bit. There was a photo attached that was taken from inside Andrea's SUV, looking outside to an area that could be identified as being in Calle. But Gabriella found the text messages odd, with misspellings and bad grammar, when Andrea always wrote properly. On April 29th, a partially burned body was found by a garbage collector on the side of the road in Calle, about 30 minutes south of where she lived in Caguas. It was Andrea. She was found face down, wearing only her underwear, stabbed and beaten, with bruising to her eyes, forehead, and the side of her face. And her body was partially burned. She had to be identified through dental records. Now, obviously, her family was devastated, and the police immediately had a number one suspect. Miguel Ocasio-Santiago, and he actually did them a big favor. On May 1st, two days after Andrea's body was found, he walked into the police command center in Guayama, asking if the body found in Calle was Andrea. While talking to him, police noticed that he had scratches and marks on him. One of his hands was swollen as if he had been in a fight. This put the agent on immediate alert. When asked, he said he had fallen two weeks ago. Upon further investigation, the agent saw evidence of blows to his torso, arms, and back. He voluntarily allowed photos to be taken of his injuries. The agent later testified that his 27 years experience in law enforcement led him to believe these were new injuries, not two weeks old. He was placed under arrest and transported to the Mennonite Hospital in Guyama. At the hospital, they took x-rays and a doctor wrote a report stating that the injuries were recent. Presented with all the evidence against him, he confessed. He said the fight had started in her apartment over the fact that he found out Andrea's ex-boyfriend had contacted her. He beat her and stabbed her, stayed in the apartment overnight, and then the next day, in Andrea's own SUV, drove her body to the wooded area in Calle, dumped her, poured gasoline, and lit her on fire. He then drove her SUV back to the apartment and parked it, which was seen by neighbors. He was put on a $1.1 million bond, which he obviously couldn't pay, so he was taken to the Bayamon Correctional Facility. In jail, he was acting erratic. They had to put him on suicide watch. He was assigned public defenders, and for a few months after him being arrested, there was a bunch of back and forth in the courts. His lawyer filed motions to send him for a psych evaluation to see if he could stand trial 
which ultimately he was deemed competent. Then his lawyers asked to be removed from the case. Miguel was claiming there was a conflict of interest, so they said they weren't able to properly communicate with him because of that. It was denied. Then, on July 23rd, the day the preliminary hearing was set to begin, Miguel asked to fire his public defenders because he said he didn't trust them and he claimed that there was a conflict of interest inside the public defender's office. The judge denied his request and advised him that the public defenders he had been assigned were two of the most experienced attorneys in the public defender's office and it would be in his best interest to keep them. In the afternoon, the preliminary hearing began. The agent that arrested Miguel and first noticed his injuries gave his testimony about that. He also testified how the Institute of Forensic Sciences did crime scene analysis in the apartment. The apartment had been cleaned, but by using Blue Star, similar to Luminol, they found blood evidence on the bedroom walls, a carpet, and a trash can. Other evidence presented showed that Miguel had taken Andrea's cell phone to a technician on April 28th and paid $45 to have it unlocked. That explained how he used it to send those messages to Andrea's friend. The preliminary hearing was set to continue August 9th through 12th, but Miguel wouldn't make it to that next court date. A few days later, on August 1st, 2021, Miguel Ocasio-Santiago was found dead in his cell, hanging from a bedsheet. The jail claims that he was only left unsupervised for 25 minutes. Not sure how much of that I believe, but that was their statement. The jails here, they're really known for their lack of accountability and covering up when they make mistakes. So I think this really might be them covering their own ass. But in any event, I'm not going to say I'm sad anyway. Yeah, definitely not some great loss. Yeah, no. I know a lot of people think her family should be happy that he's gone, and I'm sure a part of them is. But by taking the coward's way out, he denied the family their day in court to see justice for Andrea. So you would think that that would be the end of Andrea's story, but it definitely isn't. In the beginning, like a lot of femicides in Puerto Rico, it didn't get tons of coverage. News articles ran, but it wasn't huge at first. But on the same day that Andrea's body was found, April 29th, Keshla Rodriguez went missing. Her body was found on May 1st, and that's a case that I definitely want to cover too. Keshla was involved with the well-known Puerto Rican boxer Felix Verdejo. And because of that, her case got tons more attention and resources put to it than the average missing or murdered woman in Puerto Rico. Because Andrea's case happened so close to Keshla's, Andrea's case then started receiving more attention. And when her family and friends told the story of how she was let down by the judicial system, journalists and activists started digging. With the support of her family, they petitioned the courts to release all of the audio recordings and files of her trying to get protection. They were denied. So then they took it to the Puerto Rico Supreme Court, again denied. They gave the reason that it would create a precedent for victims to be afraid to come forward if they thought that the records could later be released. But I feel like the real reason was that they were embarrassed to let the whole world see how terribly that her case was handled. In 2022, they filed a case with the U.S. Supreme Court, their last chance, highest court in the land but they hear only 150 to 200 cases per year out of the over 7,000 that are brought to them. In the end, they chose not to hear the case. Along with filing for transparency from the courts, the investigative journalists also did some digging into Miguel. They found out that in 2013, he had been charged with the attempted murder of his girlfriend, another woman that he had badly abused. But under Law 54, Puerto Rico's gender violence law, he was given a diversion program. 
and when he completed it, his record was wiped completely clean of the charges. When he met Andrea, he was working as head of security, a job that you need a background check to get hired for. If he'd had that on his record, he would have never had that job, and Andrea most likely would have never met him. But let's talk about the other elephant in the room. If an investigative journalist was able to find this out, how did the court not look into his name when Andrea went to them with her story? Even if a surface background check would have come up clean, the courts had that information available to them. And one of the first things they should have checked was if this guy had ever been accused of something like this. Help was denied to this poor girl three separate times by two different judges when the man that she was accusing had a serious history with the courts concerning the very thing that she was accusing him of. That's inexcusable. That's insane. I don't understand how the courts missed that if a journalist uncovered that. The courts definitely had access to that information. Yeah, that was definitely pure laziness on their part. I want to talk a little bit about the crisis concerning domestic violence in Puerto Rico. Of course, it's been a problem going way back, but to give you a better idea, here are a few facts from recent years. Some stats from a 2012 report from the ACLU say Puerto Rico has the highest per capita rate in the world of women over 14 killed by their partners. The numbers are disturbing and climbing. 107 women were killed by their intimate partners in a five-year period from 2007 to 2011. The number of women killed by their intimate partners jumped significantly in 2011 to 30 women killed. That year, the number of women killed by their partners in Puerto Rico was six times higher than Los Angeles, which has about the same population. They also noted a high instance of women not being taken seriously by the Puerto Rico police. A 2019 joint report by Proyecto Matria and Kilometro Zero proved that things haven't gotten better. It showed that from 2014 to 2018, at least 75 women were killed by their intimate partners. And they believe that the true number is even higher. But due to a lack of transparency and underreporting, some cases aren't even classified in the gender violence category. In January of 2021, a few months before Andrea's death, Puerto Rico Governor Pedro Pelusi declared a state of emergency because of the rise in gender violence. He promised action and more resources put towards the issue. He proposed to allocate $7 million to go towards the issue, but the Junta, the financial oversight board that was put in place because of Puerto Rico's economic troubles, only approved 200000 of that, which is pretty much nothing. In 2021, just a couple months after Andrea passed away, the Observatorio de Equidad de Enero documented that 11 women had been killed by their partner already that year. Andrea was victim number five in that report. So what's happened since then? Five days after Andrea's murder, an investigation into the judges was ordered. But in October of that year, they found this. The standard of legal evidence required to initiate a disciplinary procedure has not been met. So those judges faced no professional repercussions. But there was a huge public outcry against them that even went as far as them receiving threats on social media. By the end of the year, Judge Alvarado resigned from her position. Andrea's family was very happy with that decision, and they called for the other judge, Judge Sonia Nieves, to also resign. But as far as I've been able to find, she's still an active judge. To give credit where credit is due, the presiding Chief Justice of Puerto Rico's Supreme Court, Judge Maite Oranos, who, by the way, is the first openly gay Chief Justice in Puerto Rico, she's done some good work to make changes. So far, a court watchdog group was formed. 
They randomly visit the specialized courtrooms where gender violence cases are heard. All the proceedings are held virtually, so the victim doesn't have to be in the room with the offender. And when a victim comes to the court for help, they now get assigned an advocate, and they're with them every step of the way to guide them and give them support, so no one is left alone again like Andrea was. Her family is still there, fighting for transparency, policy change, and action. They don't want Andrea to have died in vain. They want a part of her legacy to be that her case was the one that got the world watching and jump-started a real change. That's why I chose this case as my first. Every person who listens to this is one more that knows her name and knows her story, and I think that's important. So thank you for listening, and thank you for hanging in there with us while we did our first episode. Yeah, and don't forget to follow us on social media at Web of Wicked on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or email us at webofwicked at gmail.com. Thanks, guys. Bye. Bye. Bye.